I want to share something that's been on my heart for around 10 or 12 years. And, you know, when something sort of grips my heart or kind of my revelation eyes sort of latch onto it, I have to sort of stay in that lane. And whether that's a sermon I'll listen to on repeat, a book I'll read five times, a passage of scripture that I might read every day for like a year, I have to sort of stay in that lane until I work it out. And this is something that I've been working through for a very long time. And, you know, I want to share part of that as it's become really sort of just part of my ethos. It's part of the way that I think and how I see the world. And I'd like just to start with praying. So, Father, I, I love you. I thank you for your presence this morning. I thank you for the opportunity just to be with you. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. And Father, I'm excited to share what you've put on my heart, but I just yield my agenda to you. Whatever you say, I'll say. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm already starting to cry. It's not a good sign. Uh, actually, I think I should give the credit to my mother for this one. She's right there, young lady in the third row, embarrassed now, which is my goal. But before I became a man and put away childish things, as the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, and much later than I actually care to admit, that woman refused to give up responsibility for my spiritual growth. And she came back from a conference uh, with my dad, as they always did, and sent me a bunch of CDs and said, listen to them and I'll call you tomorrow and you can tell me about them. <laughs> I exaggerated slightly on that note. But I did listen to them and it was full of really great stuff of Bill Johnson and Randy Clark and Lance Wall now, among others. And the first time I had really heard some of those guys. And something that Lance Wall now had just said stuck out to me. If you're familiar with Lance... A wonderful speaker, brilliant guy, uh, wrote the Seven Mountain Mandate or Seven M, uh, sort of mind molders of culture. And, you know, I really sort of just gravitated towards him. He kind of thinks like I think, or at least he speaks like I think anyway. And I want to share a little bit about something I heard back then and that's been developing ever since then. And what's interesting is that I lost the CD shortly after listening to it a few times. And about five years go by, and so now we're in like 2011. And I tried to use what I heard at work. And so we were uh, bringing all the managers and the entire company together. We were in the middle of a, an entire shift in the business to focus on to actually what we do today. But we needed to bring in all the managers from around the company into one room so we could impart to them about the shift in the business, about the what we were doing, and we were trying to figure out what to do. And so I went to the owners of the business at the time anyway, and I said, you know what, I know what to do. And they didn't ask many questions, which was kind of good, because I went off to prepare what ultimately sounded a lot more like a sermon than a business strategy discussion. And I made the mistake of looking over amidst of it, which made me start sweating, because they were looking a little nervous about what was going down. But I landed it, at least I think I did, by the grace of God, and looked over even just in time to see the president at the time looking over and saying, oh, that was good. So I want to share, start out sharing with that. They were asking me for a title and ended up on sort of kingdom culture. And I was flirting with that and sort of kingdom influence, apostolic influence was my working title for a little, a couple of weeks. But uh, I want to share some of that. I want to start with what Jesus said to the apostles. And this is in Matthew chapter 10. You don't need to turn to it because I'm just going to summarize a little bit for you. But Jesus goes and he says, all right, I want you to go out. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to feed the poor, uh, cast out demons, and raise the dead. Okay, super literal. Kind of practical for them. They had seen some of that stuff. But how does that make sense for us today? 
And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that because those are, are good things to definitely do. But to, to understand, I think it's important to sort of study the word and study uh, what Jesus was actually trying to say. And to understand that, you want to understand the, one of the root words of apostle, which I think most people know that it means the sent one. But one of the first uses of the root word was actually apostolos. And the apostolos was the lead ship in the Phoenician navy. And this was a strategy later adopted by the Romans and the Greeks. And this was the lead ship or the admiral on board the lead ship that was on an expedition to colonize a territory that had already been conquered. You know, and why is this important? So Napoleon wasn't known for being a preacher or a great theologian, but I think we can agree that guy knew a thing or two about warfare. And here's what he said. The purpose of warfare is victory. But the purpose of victory is occupation. If you don't occupy the territory, it will be yielded back to whoever had it prior to the victory. We've seen this time and time again in history, where countries are won over and then given back. We've seen it in church, especially in revivals. If you start studying some of those, you'll see that a few decades later or years later, you know, there's no lasting effect. There was a lot of study being done about the Welsh revival in the early 2000s at the 100-year anniversary of that. And what was interesting is that a move that swept an entire nation had almost no one in church 100 years later. Maybe you've seen this personally. How many have ever seen someone get breakthrough in an area just to be right back where they were a couple months later? Look, I get it. I want to celebrate breakthrough too. It is a wonderful thing to see. But we need to have a strategy about how you stay through when you break through. Otherwise, it's as good as no breakthrough later anyway. And so that was the occupying the territory is what we're talking about. And that was the first objective of the apostolos. But the final objective, the objective of occupation is to recreate the culture of the one that sent them. And so when the king or the emperor or the ruler, let's use the Romans for example. This side, you guys can be the Romans. When Caesar would arrive in the occupied territory, maybe in Philippi or Colossia, he would look around and look at the road system and the monetary system that was established and the postal system and the order of government and say, yeah, this looks a lot like Rome. Or you guys can be the Greeks. We were just talking about Greece, actually. But anyway, you guys are the Greeks. And Alexander the Great would arrive in the conquered territory and look around and say, where are the schools? Where are the libraries? Is that Greek language I hear? Yeah, this looks a lot like home. Jesus Christ, the apostle of our faith, came from heaven in order to invade earth and bring the culture of heaven down to earth. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He was the admiral of an armada, that's you and me, coming behind him to occupy his conquest. He said, heal the sick, feed the poor, cast out demons, raise the dead, because when I work here, I'm going home. I'll be sitting at the right hand of the Father. My sister's crying, it's making me cry. Don't do that. I'm gonna go home and sit at the right hand of the Father, but I'm coming back. And when I do, it should look a lot like home. So let's talk about how we make it look like home for Jesus. How do we make the culture of earth reflect the culture of heaven? So we're talking about influencing the culture, and I want to say, how does that apply to us today? And I think that depends a little bit on what your calling is. And I want to discuss that for a minute, because when I was coming up in the 80s and 90s, I know I'm older than I look, there wasn't really a process. Nobody was talking, in church anyway, nobody was talking about marketplace ministry or business ministry. It was business, or you go to work, or you're in ministry. 
And if you were called to preach or be a missionary, whoo, you got the call of God, man. And everybody else, well, you were kind of coach. And it was okay, though, because most of the world is actually just working and not in full-time ministry. And someone has to pay the tithes so we can have the lights on and gather together. It was okay, but that's kind of what I was hearing in church. But the truth is there are no second-string players in the body of Christ. I've heard it said like this. Equipping ministries are supposed to equip the saints. And the final move of God will be when the saints take the kingdom, not the preachers. That changed everything for me when I heard that. So, talk about business for a minute because I think it's actually harder to be apostolic in business than in ministry. Because in business, you sometimes have to handle the, the natural, the practical, and the spiritual. Not just the spiritual. Sometimes it's different from guys that are just in full-time ministry. They can just be super spiritual all the time. In fact, that's kind of what they're supposed to do, right? But in business sometimes, or if you're working, sometimes you have to handle the practical. So, so John, if you're not practical, if you're not realistic with a competitor in the marketplace, is that going to work out too well for you? Not likely, right? He's going to eat your lunch. And that guy works out a lot. He needs to eat. <laughs> Although I don't know if we should measure how well practical somebody are by how much they're eating, because clearly I've been maybe too practical. But... Uh, we have to handle the spiritual is what we're talking about, and that implies that there's a supernatural around it. So let me ask a question. I'm going to throw out some names, and when you hear a name that you believe that person had, if they're not with us, or has, uh, a supernatural calling on their life, just raise your hand for me. Bill Johnson, Billy Graham, John Wesley, keep them raised for me so I can see them, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, Luke, Jesus, I'm trying to get everyone's hand raised. Okay, put them down. Making sure maybe some people are actually already asleep. That's good. That's good. Okay, raise your hand if you think you have a supernatural calling on your life. Almost the same amount. I think I'm going to need more time. Okay. If your hand's not raised, you have a supernatural calling on your life because it's not business or ministry or school teacher or ministry or whatever or ministry, it's a supernatural calling on your life following Jesus in whatever business, vocation, position that you're in. I'm called to do business. And just because I am doesn't mean everyone is. This concept will apply to everybody. I certainly don't want to alienate stay-at-home mothers. You have the hardest job in the entire world. I wouldn't, <laughs> that's right. I would know for two reasons. I was raised by one, and I didn't make it easy. And I've also married to one. And of course, I just said that she's not here. She's homesick, and she's a superwoman, and that's happened before. And I've actually stayed home, like, for a couple of days in a row. And no one should have to live like that. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. Bless you all stay-at-home mothers. All right, so we're talking about the supernatural. And God, that implies that God is going to put something super on top of the natural. The assumption is that we have our natural in working order, right? We want God to put the super on, on the natural. That implies that we've got natural tendencies, the gifts that God have given us in place so that we can sustain the supernatural moving through it. Because we don't want to add rocket fuel to something just to have it blow up later, right? We don't want God to put on prophecy and visions and tongues, interpretations, and just to, poof, just to blow up and hurt somebody. That's not the design for it. So we got to have the natural things in place. And today is not a self-help seminar about how to do that, so we don't have time for that part, but I wanted to call that part out. 
because we're going to be speaking about the supernatural. Let me use an example. We can all go to Dunkin' Donuts, and I use that example specifically because I think it's better than Starbucks, and we can argue about that later if you want. Thank you. But it's better. But we could go in there, and we can felt led to pray for somebody and do that, and we should do that. But what we're not going to be able to do is go behind the register and help them fix a problem or go back into the kitchen and fix a problem they're having there. They're not going to let us do that, right? We don't work there. We don't have authority to be back there. We don't have any jurisdiction to be in there. That's not our area of influence. That's not our sandbox, right? And this is important because we're called to occupy the territory of whatever sphere of influence we're in, whatever sandbox that we get to play in every day, we're called to occupy that territory. But we can't always do it from a distance. So you have to be inside the territory. I can't necessarily affect your business. You have to because you have the authority to be there. Let me back this up biblically. David is a businessman. He's a shepherd. And he's taking his brother's lunch. And he gets to see the giant manifesting. He sees Goliath and says, why aren't we dealing with this? And we see this story, right? Uh, Saul says, send that young boy over to me. And he gives him his armor and David's probably like my size, can't move around it in too much. And uh, we know he fights Goliath. But what's important, and this is in uh, 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 18, Saul makes David a captain. So it is inferred here that David had to be inducted into the army to fight Goliath. He didn't fight Goliath as a shepherd. We know he did it with the shepherd's tools, but I think Goliath would have probably just sent his armor bearer to kill some boy that was out in the field. But... Uh, Goliath said in the challenge in the beginning of, of the story that we know is if you send one of yours out to fight me and if I beat him you'll be our slaves but if he beats me we'll be your slave you will be your slaves David had to fight Goliath representing the government he had to fight him representing the army of Israel so he couldn't do it from a distance you have to be inside the territory and this just isn't in business this applies to whatever your area of influence is in. If you're a school teacher, or if you're in a PTA, or an HOA, or anything that ends in an A, or uh, a high school, or college, or a peer group, or a spin class at the gym, whatever your sandbox is, right, that's your area of influence, and you're called to have authority to bring the culture of heaven down to that. And God can give you the answers just like he did David. He'll give you answers for dealing with business strategies or problems that haven't been solved yet. So we're talking about God putting the super on the natural, and that implies that we have our natural in place, and then we need to get the super part. So let's talk about that, because the best example is Jesus. So I want to read from Luke chapter 4, if you wanted to read as well. So Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If, if, we're going to come back to this a couple of times, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then the devil, taking him up high on a mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me before me, all will be yours. Jesus refuses. He says, 
Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Okay, so Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested by the devil. Before Jesus invaded any territory, he was searched out by the enemy to see what areas of control the enemy had of him. And out of the battle of the 40 days, a period of testing, there was no real yet manifestation of what Jesus' purpose or capabilities were. There was just a contest and a conflict over his identity. So for a season, he was being tested about who he was before he had done what he was capable of doing. Has anyone ever had the enemy taunting you or jeering you or provoking you about who you think you are because you've yet to produce the thing that God called you to do? Maybe you're in your wilderness stage. And that's okay because the wilderness is good. You just need to understand what the purpose of the wilderness is. The purpose of the wilderness is to enable the anointing to permeate you for your assignment. See, when Jesus went into the desert, he went in full of the Spirit. And there were some great teachings last summer here about getting filled. It's super important because you need to rest and soak and get before God and be still and know that he is God because the devil came at, at uh, Jesus in the wilderness and he, res he was able to resist. So when you get filled with the Spirit, God does a saturating of you that produces a quality of rest in you that gives you an extra something working for you when the enemy comes against you. And then we too can resist the devil. So Jesus went into the wilderness filled with the Spirit, but came out of the wilderness, in verse 14, in the power. See, the wilderness is just a stage or a process where God transforms you from potential to manifest actual. The wilderness is just a part of the process where God transforms you from potential to manifest actual. So he went into the wilderness with something on him. He came out with something moving through him. But he hadn't even done a miracle yet. The enemy said, if, if you are the Son of God, then demonstrate, do something. And yet, the strength of his battle wasn't on his performance because he hadn't done a miracle yet. He, he won based on the clarity of his identity and his conviction of the calling from the Father. The enemy was wrestling with Jesus to see if he had anything in him. And what was that battle? If you are the Son of God. This was a battle of identity. Identity. You say it. Thank you. Just making sure everyone's still awake. So the first stronghold that the enemy was wrestling with Jesus was really who he was, who he had claimed to be, without having a track record yet to prove it. Of course, he had the knowledge of the virgin birth, whatever story his mother and Joseph had, had told him. And what? His relationship with the Father. His communion with God. Which tells us that our relationship with the Father is the key to engaging in supernatural. Because Jesus said, I only know what the Father tells me. What he sees and shows me. What he tells me to say. So Jesus comes out of the wilderness in the power. And this is now in Luke chapter 5. And he gets on Peter's boat and says, launch it out again into the deep and let down your nets. I love this part because Peter's like, Master, we were out all night fishing when fishing works. Because fish typically get caught in the net when they don't see it. Now you want us to go out during the day? Um, eh. All right, nevertheless, you're saying to do it, so we'll do it. But I'm telling you, as a fisherman, daytime's not the best time to drop the net. But what happens? They catch a whole boat full of fish that it starts sinking. And they're waving to their business partners, we need more boats. 
I don't know if this is how they did it back then, but this is how I would do it. I need another boat. You see, when you're doing it God's way, God can cause even marketplace dynamics to be manipulated in such a way that even common sense will be humbled by the supernatural. The first miracle of Jesus for the disciples' sake was a business miracle because he's the Lord of the marketplace too. But it's not just business or ministry. Let me give you this example by Norval Hayes. Everybody heard of Norval Hayes? Great author, wonderful businessman, uh, great Bible teacher, founded ministries all over the place. Unfortunately, he died uh, last fall, last October. Uh, but the Holy Spirit would come to Norval and, and say, go out to the poor part of town and hand out groceries. Or go down to Fort Lauderdale, Miami, like this week in the really wild spring break weeks and just hand out tracts, talk about salvation. And so he would do that. And on the way flying home, God would give him an idea for a quarter of a million dollar business innovation. Or he'd give him the answer to a solution that he needed in business that he hadn't happened. Because it's not business or ministry or whatever or ministry. It's a supernatural calling on your life following Jesus. And when he was just ministering, the business was coming to him. Are you with me? Anyone asleep? Let me try harder. Okay. So the second time Jesus has to wrestle with something, it's not in the wilderness, it's in the garden. It's in Gethsemane. And he was wrestling with about what was about to happen next until the Bible says he literally sweat blood until it just leaked out of the capillaries of his skin. This is in John chapter 14, verse 30. He says to his disciples, the prince of this world's coming, but he has nothing in me. Your translation might say ruler. I like the one that says, the prince of this world's coming, but he has nothing in me. A little translation would be, he has no hooks in me. You see, on one level, he had come to take Israel. And in the wilderness, he had a 40-day pre-qualification test for that. And he came out stronger than when he went in because the conflict only worked the calling through him. But now the stakes are much bigger. He's now going to play for the sins of the world. In the wilderness, Satan offered him world kingdoms, and he refused. But now he's going to take the kingdoms by force. And understand, in the spirit realm, Satan knows the challenge has been laid. He must stop this man. And in his demented twisted mind. He conceives of an idea that if man can kill God, it would be deicide. It would be the ultimate act of rebellion greater than the rebellion of Lucifer himself. But Lucifer couldn't get his hands on God, but man can. So if he can incite them to murder and betray their own Messiah, surely he would have dominion over earth wrapped up. But the Father, Jesus, the Spirit had a plan, and it is that he must die in order to succeed in destroying the power of death. But he said, the prince of this world's coming, but he's got nothing in me. You see, the whole world was one because the enemy had no territory on the inside of the man of God. Business is great. I actually love it. I love what I do. I love talking about business. Many of you had to suffer through having coffee with me while I, I just talk about your business because I just love it so much. It's what I'm called to do. And God is interested in our success. He absolutely is. We were designed to succeed. He's interested in it. He's just not as interested in that as he is in the transformation of our personality to conformity in the image of Christ. Because like Jesus, we will have tests. And again, that's okay. The purpose of the test is just to qualify you for what's coming next. You can't drive a car, at least get a license to do one anyway, without taking a test. John, you can't practice medicine, right, without passing a test. Sam, you can't practice law at least legally anyway, without passing the bar, right? 
Tests are okay. And sometimes our worst hour is just the last part of the legal process of testing you for the next hour. Let's look at David again. In 1 Samuel 30, he's at Ziklag. I actually don't know if I'm saying that right. There's a tough one for me. But he's there, and he's in trouble. He's lost his wives. Yeah, he had more than one. I'm not, I don't understand that part, but he had more than one. He lost them. He lost his children. He's lost all his possessions. His troops are thinking of stoning him. What, is it, what does he do? The Bible says he strengthened himself in God. In his worst hour, he passed the test, strengthens himself in God, and the next day Saul dies and, king, and David begins his kingly reign. Well, we're going to have tests too. When we, when we pass our test, when we get filled with the Spirit, we begin to operate in the power like Jesus, we can then spread the culture of heaven and have influence in our daily lives. To do that, well, we need discernment. It's a powerful tool. Let me give you a worldview on this. Stanford University out in Silicon Valley does a study. And they take five people and put them in a room together. Four of those people are sort of a natural, a neutral emotional state. They're, they're cool. They're even keel. And one guy is depressed. Don't know where he got him from, but they found a clinically depressed guy and they put him in a room. 15 minutes, no talking. How many would have a problem with that part? I know, I, I don't think I could do that. No, Richard couldn't do it either. But we're in there, 15 minutes, no talking. They know they're being observed, but they don't know why. They bring him out and they survey him again. And the depressed person is just as depressed as when he went in. And the four neutral people are more depressed than when they went in. Stanford said, this is interesting. Let's, let's do it again with a different disposition. And they get an angry person. They run down to the angry store, rent a guy for an hour, or slap the depressed person in the face, and get him upset, throw him in the room. Again, 15 minutes, no talking. When they come out, the angry person is just as angry as when they went in. And the four neutral people are more angry than when they went in. And so what the determination was, it's not that depression is contagious or that anger is contagious. It's that the peak emotional state is contagious. See, who, he who has the dominant state influences the passive. So when you come into contact with people, you leave a residue. Whatever spiritual atmosphere is more dominant, whatever spiritual state is more dominant, it can take over. Now, the Bible says that Jesus would baptize us with Holy Spirit and fire. Your translation might say Holy Ghost and fire, but the important part here is fire because the characteristic of fire is that it's a penetrating, non-negotiable force that vibrates at such a pitch that whatever comes into contact with it is changed by interaction. There is no choice. See, when you carry the presence of Jesus, our ultimate assignment, that's the most dominant force. Can we agree there's nothing more dominant than the name of Jesus? That's how we can influence the culture in our sphere of influence, in our sandbox. And God can give you discernment of what's happening in the business or in people or in your environment if we can just show ourselves to be trustworthy. And how do we do that? We just wouldn't be someone that would use that information against them to harm them. Let me back up the Stanford study biblically. I'm using David this morning. So King Saul was delirious with a spirit that tormented him. And yet little David would come and play the harp and what happened? The king was soothed. He was calm. Everything was okay. <sighs> it's better. What was happening? In the radius of David's influence, he bound the operation of spirits tormenting the king. You see, when people come into contact with you, 
in your sphere of influence, you not only can discern what's happening in them or in the environment, you, can, you have the authority to bind it so that the force of favor can be released. And people just want to be around you. They don't even know why. They don't even know what to call it. They just feel better in your presence. But we know what to call it. Because God called you to take every place or territory that the sole of your foot treads. And I'm pretty sure that's in Joshua. And I'm pretty sure the New Testament's written on a better covenant with better promises than the old one. Therefore, I assume, like Joshua, there's a greater fulfillment for us today. So we are called to take every place the sole of our foot treads. We're called to occupy the territory so that we can produce the kingdom of heaven here on earth. I'm just hearing the Lord say calling to me right now. And so, if anything of this message was stirring you about your calling or anything about the supernatural calling, can I ask you to stand? If that's touching you today. There'll be a ministry ready to pray for anybody afterwards, but I just want to pray for everyone. Father, I just release identity over your people. I just release calling right now in Jesus' name, destiny in Jesus' name. Or that you would illuminate the path of every place that the sole of their foot is supposed to tread, even as they walk out of this room today. They would begin to occupy that territory for the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.